following up on last week's class, we talked about the Orthodox understanding of humanity, Christian anthropology, how because Orthodoxy believes in a more positive vision of human life, that we also then therefore believe that we can do work, we can do take action towards God that impacts our relationship with God. So we reject Luther's cry of faith alone, which ultimately comes out of the influence of Augustine and Calvin taking that to the extreme of saying it's not even faith alone, it's just God alone. Whatever God decides, God decides who will, who will be saved and who will be lost. And human beings are so fractured and broken by original sin and guilty of that sin that they can do nothing towards their own salvation, towards their relationship with God. And again, Orthodoxy says our life is a walk with God. Christ is the bridegroom of the church. We are his bride. It's an everyday walking with God, as even as we see in the great biblical figures, as they walked with God, as they struggled to understand God's will for their lives, to take direction from God, to trust in His, His word for them, and so forth. There are two things I wanted to say, and I forget, I'm, I'm missing one of them right now. Hopefully it'll come, come to me. One of them is the evidence, the proof, text, the proof, oh, I left my Bible back there. Where? The proof, over there. The proof text for, the proof text for the belief in faith and works is the entire New Testament. All the epistles, the, um, the words, the writings of, of the apostles were letters to the churches, were letters to Christians, and what were they? They were letters of encouragement, letters of of challenging them to be faithful, to act faithful. Um, I wanted to read our last two epistle readings, uh, or, or rather, last Sunday's epistle reading and this Sunday's epistle reading from Colossians. Let's see if we can do this. Not the New International Version. Lord mercy. <laughs> upon it. The Wycliffe Bible. What is that? I don't know what that is. Sorry. Okay, we'll go with that. Close enough. New King James. The priest is finding the scripture on his phone. <laughs> so here's just an example. We, we read last Sunday from Colossians 3, 4 through 11. And then this Sunday we're going to read... Uh, from 12, Colossians 3, 12 to 16. And so, St. Paul writing to the church in Colossae. Colossae is a town in Greece to this today. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you, will also, then you, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, 
in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So you once walked in disobedience, now you're walking a different way. Your actions are different. Your, your movement of your life is different. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in, the, in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Oh, and here's verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Doings. Action. If you're saved by faith alone, and better yet, if the Colossians Christians believe they were saved, period, What's the need for that? What's the need for that letter? You know, to, to challenge them in their behavior, challenge them in the way they walked with God. So again, we say that the the that our, what we what we believe and claim to believe is biblical is is a confirmation of the biblical faith, of biblical truth and teaching. And again, the the, the entire new. New Testament uh, epistles and letters and so forth are especially evidence of just that. Letters of encouragement, letters of challenging, letters of correction, and that can only be of action and of, of thinking too, but especially of, 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 of corrective thinking, so the action follows. Why? Because works matter, our Righteousness matters. Sin matters. Um, it, it 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 it's tied together. It's it's connected, according to our vision of of human freedom, of human free will. Still can't remember the other thing, but one other one other side note is is. Most churches that have the that believe the gospel of faith alone, the Reformation tradition churches, are very busy. They're they they're doing works uh, abundantly, and to their credit. And I think it's just the fact that human nature says we we I know we have to do we have to do something. Even even if it's about we have to go get other people saved, still there's an action, there's movement, there's there's behavioral. Uh, energy uh, behind the, the the daily lives of 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 these uh, of various churches. So I think that they they have a theology, but they kind of in their actions and deeds they ignore it. They don't live by it exactly in terms of the fact that they do great good works and a lot of good things. And so I'm praising them um, for that. And 
the, they're not letting the theology hold them back. The theology of every you are saved and you don't have to worry about it. So that's um, that's still not the other thing I wanted to say. But anyway, we'll uh, we'll leave. Any questions on any of that? Comments, rebuttals, refusals. So our subject tonight is the subject, our Lord and God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not that we have not talked about him up until this moment, but everything points to him and flows from him. Uh, So we're speaking of Christology, the church's teaching about who is Jesus Christ, what is understood, what is believed about him. And there's nothing radical or, or novel you're going to hear about what orthodoxy believes about Jesus. In fact, um, it, it may be quite uh, comfortable and and acceptable to you in what the church teaches and it may fill in a few gaps in your understanding but we would say that the Orthodox Church believes what's what's been believed uh, from the earliest times and indeed from the very scripture itself about who Christ is that he is the Son of God what is born of God must be true God what is born must be essentially the same as what gives birth So the teaching is that the Son of God is the same as the Father, as God the Father in all things, in all attributes, except in the fact of being the Son and not the Father. And a key point in this and in the Father's struggles with the heresies of of the time that challenged this belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ was was for them to... to, to, um, to criticize any idea that to to think that what is what what is born of God could somehow be less than God, that somehow the Son of God would be a lesser God than the Father, that would be to dishonor the Father in how the church teachers understood it. That the Son of God is born, is generated from the very being and nature of, of the Father, from all eternity. God is eternal Father. God, by his nature, God always has a son, his son or word. Uh, the son of Jesus is called both the, the son of God and the word of God. And of course, the word, especially in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So, God's nature... The God we believe in as Christians is not eternally alone in his divinity. He's not simply the mon- mono- uh, monotheistic vision of, of the one God, but that his very being as love and goodness, in a sense, overflows itself, reproduces itself in the generation of his divine Son and his divine Spirit, the Holy Trinity. Father Hopke used to like to point out that in Colossians, Colossians 1, Chapter 1, verse 13, speaks of his beloved son, but the Greek, if you break it down, 
uh, is saying the son, the son of his love. That the very love of God, in a sense, overflows in the reality of, of, of having a son, eternal son. And we're reminded of the great abyss, the great gulf between God and everything that's not God, everything that's created by God out of nothing. And, um, and, and we say that this Son of God is of one, one essence with God the Father, in Greek, homoousios, homoousios, one essence. It's some it, in the Latin verbiage. It's consubstantial, consubstantial of the same substance, of the same substance. The, or you could just say of 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 the same of the one being, the same being or nature, sharing the same being, nature, essence, substance. All these words are interchangeable. And again, we use all these words because no word ultimately quite expresses everything, but that comes close to it. So the Son of God is what God the Father is in his essence. Esse and the verb uh, esse in Latin is the verb to be, E-S-S-E. So it's about being, it's about, about the isness. What it? What is it? Um, when... We, what what is what is the son of god he is god, he is divine the son of god is always with the father shares the one the same life will power and what, of action with the father whatever the father does the son does as well in the act of creation the father is creator the son of the word of god is co-creator together with the father all things were created by him and for him um we confess that the Son is the one by whom all things were made in the creed. So the Son accomplishes the Father's will in everything, in creation, uh, in revelation, in sal our salvation, uh, in every, every divine action. Uh, theologians point to when God says, um, when God creates... In, in, in the book of Genesis that he creates through his divine word even the fact that God said is that his word goes out the word goes out from God the Father the Son of God is out doing the work of creation sent forth from the Father the prologue of John first chapter of the gospel John all things were made through him and by him or by him the Greek could be seen either way so, the way I should have started the class was to read from this book, which in its new edition is this book. If anyone does not have this book, let me know. I'll give it to you after. The entire history of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All that happened to the chosen children of Abraham happened in view of the eventual and final destruction of sin and death by Christ. The covenants of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel, the story of Joseph, the Passover, the Exodus, 
the reception of God's law by Moses, the entrance into the promised land by Joshua, the founding of Jerusalem and the building of the temple by David and Solomon, the judges, kings, prophets, and priests, everything in the Old Testament history of God's chosen people finds its final purpose and meaning in the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of God's only Son, Jesus the Messiah. He is the one who comes from the Father to save the people from their sins, to open their tombs, and to grant eternal life to all creation. The fundamental confession of Christians is that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Lord, which is to identify him with the God of the Old Testament. That he's not some different revelation of God. He asks the apostles, who do you say that I am? And this is the key question for all of mankind, for all of history, for all human beings. Who is Jesus? And so to say that Jesus Jesus is the Christ is the confession, the key confession of faith. Christ is not his last name. Christ means the one anointed with chrism. Yeshua, Jesus, save means Savior, so he's the anointed Savior. It's, it's the, save, the, the Savior who is anointed, Yeshua, Messiah, the, the Christ, the Messiah. Also the, also the name Joshua and Jesus are synonymous. But he's the one promised to the world from, from, from the promise given to Abraham and his children that uh, all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. And so we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one the Jews had awaited, a savior of the people, but not just a political savior, as the zealot party believed, and were pulling upon the Lord to be more of a political uh, figure in his day, but that he is indeed the divine son of God come in the flesh. There are people that say, well, Jesus had many great teachings and many, many wonderful sayings and did wonderful things, but never claimed to be God. And that's simply not true. Uh, for, once he, for one thing, he said, before Abraham was, I am, which is exactly to identify with Yahweh, the I am that I am, God that Moses met on Mount Sinai. But he also... Uh, confesses his divinity with a riddle summoning Psalm 110 where um, in, in the Psalm 110 we have this expression the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool and Jesus says Jesus quotes this and so he says and so David's the author of the Psalms that's a given. So Jesus says in this in identifying this psalm, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He says, if David calls him Lord, the Lord said to my Lord. Now this psalm is, is considered a messianic psalm, a psalm that points directly to the Messiah, to the chosen one, to God's anointed. Jesus says, now, if, so if David is saying the Lord said to my Lord, 
and if and and he says, um, I should just read it from the scripture. I have it here. I now have it. Uh, Psalm one ten, and then the, and then uh, Jesus comments on it in Mark Mark twelve thirty five. And Jesus answered and said, while well, he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that the Christ is the son of David? For if David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence, he, and whence his, is he then his son? And the people heard him gladly. In other words, he's saying, David is saying the messianic figure, David is calling in the psalm the messianic figure Lord, Kyrios, the Lord, calling, saying he's divine. And so Jesus says, if David is calling the Messiah, now the, the other thing I should have said is the Messiah is understood to be, to be the son of David, of the lineage of David, right? So the Messiah is a humanly an, a, a, a descendant of David. So the Messiah must be a son of David. So Jesus says, but if David calls him Lord, how is he just his son? In other words, if David is, is giving him divine title, how is he merely human? Jesus is exactly pointing to say, I am the Messiah, I am that one, and I'm not merely the son of David, humanly. I'm not merely human. Got it? I don't know, I always mess that up. He's more than, he's more than the son of David. David calls him Lord even though he's supposed to be the son of David, the, the Messiah. That he's the one and only Lord identified with Yahweh in the Old Testament, we Christians believe. So the Lord was again a term used for God alone. God is the Lord and has revealed himself to us, Psalm 118. And, and in, the, in, this, in the creed, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the prime confession of faith for which the early Christians died. And this, this belief claims identity of Jesus with the Most High God of the Old Covenant. So again, he is the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of me, true God of true God, of one essence with the Father. We talked about that. He always existed. He, he exists eternally, uncreated, and divine. Uh, there never was a time when there was no Son of God. And this is the difference then orthodoxy has with Arianism. Arian, Arius said there was a time where God did not have a son, that Jesus is sort of the adopted son of, of the Father, but not really. Well, he didn't even say that exactly. He said he's sort of a special creature. It was Nestorius that said he's sort of the adopted son of God, but still overemphasizing his humanity and de-emphasizing his divine reality. Um, and, and that he's God by nature, that... And and as one person, I think it was C.S. Lewis talked about, if to to understand the Trinity, in a just a sort of very kind of kindergarten way, that it's like these, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, these three books, were always there from all eternity. Just always was that way. There never was a time when it was just two books or one book, and then the other books were added. It was just always three. Sorry, you can't see that thing. So some scripture readings. 
talking about the identity identity of our Lord. Colossians is the 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 epistle to Colossians is the quintessential Christological epistle, which is to say it's the epistle that most intensely talks about the identity of Jesus. Ephesians is more ecclesiological. It more uh, focuses on the church and understanding what the church is. So those two epistles kind of have a different emphasis theme. But Colossians is about Jesus. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. So there it is. He's very much a part of creation. He's even the creator of the angels. Because those thrones, dominions, and so forth, we know those are of the ranks of the angels we talked about in a previous session. We look as well to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 verse 2. Well, we'll read the first verse. God, who has at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, heir, H-E-I-R, by whom also he made the worlds. Hebrews 2.10 For it became him, talking about Christ, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For, for whom, for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. So, the creation is for him. It's, it's to, the creation is, you could say, God's gift to the Lord, but he also participates in its creation. It's for him and by him. By him and for him. Romans 11. Oh, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I, I didn't, that's not what I wanted to read, but there it is. Um, can't say that's faith alone. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Why would you do that if, if, if all you need is faith? Again, the scripture is evidence of the theology, the teaching. The teaching, the theology comes from scripture. Um, Romans 11, there's a, it's, uh, there's a, the scholars say that the epistle originally concluded with the 11th chapter, and this is kind of a summary. It's like a glorification, doxology at the end. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And then, there's a 12th chapter, so the scholars think some additional chapters were added to Romans, but that doesn't matter to us so much. Questions on that? I'm caught up. Sort of. So our, when we look at Christ, when we look at in his reality we look at his life death and resurrection oh no it's terrible um, 
we're not going to, I mean, we could spend the entire class just speaking on his teachings. Gospel of, uh, or the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, his teachings about how we should live, calling, which again, faith and works. Why is he taking the trouble to teach us how to live if we just need faith? Sorry, stop harping on that. But, um,. Uh, all his teeth, his of course, his miracles, everything that he did to evidence his his divine power, uh, and and to evidence his love for us and wanting to heal us, and so forth. Um, orthodoxy, and not orthodox. Well, orthodox. The fathers, the fathers, emphasize, especially Saint Athanasius the Great, writing in in the fourth century. Uh, that the, in, the life of our Lord, the incarnation, the understanding that in Jesus God takes on carne, human flesh, that the, the very incarnation itself is already the beginning of our healing, already the beginning of our salvation. Um, the cross and the resurrection complete that, but all, what it's, it's already begun with just the very fact of who he is that the divine Son of God was born of human flesh for the salvation of the world. The life of Christians is built on this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent forth his Son because of his perfect love for the world. God knew of, of the need for the incarnation when he created the world. According to the Father's teaching, so, so we begin in looking at Christ. We begin with the incarnation, that He came down from heaven. That in this coming down is relative. Um, if you're in China, it made Him come. Well, He, you know, came. The Son of God came from the totally other. What that means is came down, not so much vertically, but came down from the other divine existence of God outside of the bounds of time and space. Um, but again, we use these human words, these metaphors, these imagery, just to try to understand the reality. Um, some historians and theologians talk about God entered history. He entered, and that's fine too. But um, we're struggling t to express what it means. That, uh, And then another um, interesting aspect of of our understanding of God's revelation is that the Son of God was not absent before his incarnation. That in, in Orthodox teaching in the Fathers, the Fathers say it was the Son of God, the Word of God, you know, that was, that was speaking to, to Noah, speaking to Abraham, speaking to Moses that it was he that gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So when he stands on the, on the Mount of Tabor and, tri, 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 and on the, the day of his transfiguration, and Elijah and Moses and Elijah are there with him, who represent the law, and Moses the law and Elijah the prophets, he says, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the, the very law that he gave to Moses. So that's what we, we believe that he was already the actor communicating on behalf of the Father to to the creation that he that he helped create, 
that he shared in the creation uh, before he takes flesh before he's in before he's incarnated he's already active in in foreshadowing in moving the people of Israel in the right direction each human being is is a reflection of the image of the divine son of god that he is the light and light the light the life of every man that cometh into the world as we read in again in the first chapter of john that he is present in every one of his created beings in the image of god in each of us who share in his being The divine Son and Word of God is born as a man from the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we say that the virgin birth is not simply God saying, let's do some neat little miracle just to show how special he is. We'd say, I think we've talked about this, that the virgin birth in fact is logical. He who was born of the Father before alternity without a mother is born in history born on earth of a human mother without a father he doesn't need a human father he has a divine father he doesn't need a divine mother he has a human mother so that's the virgin birth the virgin birth you know crystallizes that for for us at the fulfillment of old testament prophecy isaiah 7:14 behold a virgin shall bear a son and thou shalt call his name emmanuel Only God can save. Man alone cannot because it is man himself who must be saved. Every humanistic solution to human problems falls short because the problem with man is man. The problem of humanity are human beings. We are our own problem. We needed, we needed someone to come in to our situation. We needed um, someone to be born uh, one to be born not merely a man like all others needing salvation we needed someone not of this world to come into this world to save the world and Jesus is not a mere man but he's the, he's the complete man with a, with a human mind, soul and body true man in every way, true, truly human he is, the, he is the man the son and word of God has become again born of a father without a mother before all eternity born of a mother without a father in time so Mary is Theotokos the one who gives birth to God the birth giver of God did I read Ezekiel 44 about the virgin birth we believe two things about Mary that she's Theotokos which means mother of God and this is a doctrinal statement confirmed by the third, third ecumenical council of Ephesus in the year 431 uh, there was a t there was a, a heretic Nestorius. Nestorius, I'm not going to write his name. Didn't deserve it. <laughs> Nest, it's like Nest with the Aureus on the end of it. But um, he 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 said that she's she, you can't call her Theotokos. She did she, she couldn't give birth to God. You can call her Christotokos. She gave birth to Christ. She gave birth to a special man. And then maybe along, maybe later on he was God adopted him as his son, uh, gave him a sort of divine identity from above, 
but but can't can't say that that's God was that God in Mary's womb as the as that uh, article talks about. We say exactly yes, that was God in Mary's womb. Um, it wasn't a story who said I I cannot bow down and worship a baby in dirty diapers. Didn't have diapers in those days, but you get the idea. Um, human his rationality his he he couldn't accept that God and that's and that's under we can sympathize to a degree with his human limited rational faculties not being able to under grasp how God could become a helpless child needing his creatures uh, to to care for him you know, as we sing in the Akathis the hymns the poetic hymn to Theotokos uh, he who is who holds the whole creation in his arms is held in the arms of a virgin mother. You know, we the the father's contrast. How could it be that the the greatness, the uncircumscribed God, that nothing can contain God? God is beyond and enveloping everything of reality. Accepts to be circumscribed. Accepts to be contained, even in a helpless infant. And but that's our faith. That's or, or that's Orthodox Christian faith is no, that's God born in Bethlehem. Which of course most Christians, all Christians, used to believe. Uh, so it's not unique to to Orthodoxy. But so but that's one doc. There's two doctrines. The one is Theotokos, that she's mother of God. The other is that she's ever virgin. That's a doctrine of Orthodoxy. Again, there are anti-Catholic Protestants and I say that only as that the motivation is anti-Catholic in their wanting to say no no Mary don't be silly Mary had other children you know Jesus has brothers and so forth and and the church is horrified by such thinking that um, that you know, when you the, the church is understanding that when you give birth to God bodily, that's that's what your body's for. That's it. You know, that she remains a virgin for all eternity. And we have a proof text, we claim. And we have a proof text that, that goes to our theology, and it's read on the eve of every feast of, of the Theotokos, at every feast of, of Mary. And it's Ezekiel 44. Context for this is um, there was the Babylonian captivity. At a certain time, 500-something B.C., Babylonians came in, which we're talking now from Iraq, I guess, Iraq, Iran, came down, uh, conquered the Israelites, took everyone, a slave back up into to Babylon, to Syria, Assyria and destroyed the temple. So Ezekiel was the prophet living at that time, himself taken captivity. He begins to have visions of the, the temple having been destroyed. He begins to have visions from God of what the new temple will look like. He's kind of literally be given, we would say today, a virtual reality sort of tour uh, as to what the new temple, when, when the Israelites are freed and returned, to to uh, to Israel, what the new temple will look like. We remember, and now theologically speaking, we remember that the temple was not merely a nice a special building, but that 
the Jews believed it was the place where the very glory of God, the very presence of God, tabernacle, dwelt with his people. We say of Mary, because of who her son is, that she is the temple of God not made with hands. She's the temple of God not, not constructed by human beings. She's the new temple because the presence of God dwelt in her in the presence of her son Jesus. So Ezekiel's having this tour of the temple. And it's, it's kind of, first it's like an angel, but then he just says the Lord showed and that, so then he brought me, talking about the angel, then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east, and it was shut, the gate of the temple shut. Then the Lord said unto me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be open. No man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. It is for the prince, the prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord, he shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate, and shall go out by the way of the same. Then brought he me the way of the north gate before the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell upon my face. So there it is. There's, there's, the, the, there's the, the gate, the, the, the eastern gate shall be shut, it shall not be open. No man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, has, the God of Israel, has entered in by it. Right, so we got that. That's fine. No man shall enter, only God. But then it is it is for the prince. In the third verse, it is for the who's the prince. The prince shall sit in the te- in in the temple vestibule to eat to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate. Shall go out by the way the same. But the gate shall remain shut. It shall not be open. The ever virginity of Mary, as we say, it's spelled out right there. She has temple. I mean. First, we're told, no man shall go in and out of the gate, but the prince shall. The prince must be divine. The prince must be God, since only the Lord will go in and out. And, and he's nurtured, he's, he's, he's nourished in the temple. Eat bread before the Lord in the temple. So, And that's something to meditate on, read it yourself. Ezekiel 44, verses 1 through 4. So we we again say that that um, that's that's the use of her, the fulfillment of her vocation as a human being, and indeed the, the vocation fulfillment of her of her life bodily physically. To give birth to God in the virgin birth. Everything Jesus does in his life is according to the creed, for us men and for our salvation. We speak of him being in every way we are except without sin. There's a couple important important passages with that in mind. Hebrews 2.14 and 4.15. 2.14 and 4.15. 2.14 Hebrews is, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And again, he comes to destroy the power of death and the power of the devil. 4.15 of Hebrews, For he hath, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So we talked about how tem- 
one can be tempted and not sin. Uh, he is tempted in every way we are, but without sin. And then to uh, Philippians, famous passage of Philippians 2.6 as well, um, speaks of Christ who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to equal with God, that made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a serp- servant, which in Greek really is slave, took upon himself, the f- which is us, took upon himself the form of a slave, was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also hath highly exalted him, and given him name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So he committed no sin. This is reinforced as well. One more place, uh, St. Peter, first letter of Peter. St. Peter gets overshadowed by Paul, but he's got some really good epistles too. Speaks of Christ. uh, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guilt, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. When he, but committed himself to him that judgeth right righteously. Who of his own self bare our sins on his own body in the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. For whose stripe, by whose stripes you were healed. But he committed no sin. He knew no sin. Perfect obedience, doing the will of the Father. Perfect God, perfect man, the perfect image of humanity. He fulfills the new and final Adam. Um, he, he does everything we fail to do. He, he fulfills all that humanity failed in. For by and so he, Romans five speaks of the contrasting Adam, old Adam, new Adam. For as by one man's disobedience many many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And he comes down to us, and takes our humanity, lifts in the world and lifts it, gives it back to God the Father as a new creation. Talked about. St. Irenaeus of Lyon speaking of the incarnation as recapitulation. Recapitulation. The word caput, caput, C-A-P-I-T, the word from we get from capital. Uh, capital is the top of a column. It's also the capital building, capital city, the first, the highest, the head means literally the head in Latin, capit. Um, in effect, Christ puts a new head, a new caput. He recapitulates. He puts a new head on our humanity. A, a new. He's the new Adam. He's the new model of humanity, allowing for a new beginning of life, free from the power of sin, death, and the devil for each of us.
He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament of God's of God's work with Israel. As the Savior Messiah, Jesus fulfilled as well all of the prophecies and expectations of the Old Testament, fulfilling and crowning in final and absolute perfection all that was begun in Israel for human and cosmic salvation. Thus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the completion of the law of Moses, the fulfillment of the prophets, and himself the final prophet, the king, the teacher, the one great high priest of salvation, and the perfect sacrificial victim, the new Passover, and the bestower of the Holy Spirit upon all creation. It is in this role as Messiah, King of Israel, and Savior of the world, that Christ insisted upon his identity with God the Father and called himself the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection, the life, the light of the world, the bread of life, the door to the sheepfold, the good shepherd, the heavenly son of man, the son of God, and God himself, the I am. And so it's very much a part of our apologetics, which is to say our defense of the faith, that Jesus truly is the divine Son of God, he truly lived, he truly died, he truly resurrected as a true human being. And the uh, one modern theologian speaks of the scandal of particularities. The scandal of particularities. How could it, how could it be that it was this man in that place of those people at that time to say that there was God's injection into into history. There was God changing the 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 path, changing the very nature of humanity in himself and that all and, and of all who would be united with him. How could it be that that was God's plan? Of that small, uh, pitiful, persecuted minority people, the Israelites, the Jews, um, when there were other great cultures, as we're told, you know, the 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 ancient Asian culture of, of of the Chinese and the Japanese and the and the Indian culture of India uh, that they pre-existed, and of course, there's the uh, the great uh, uh, Greek philosophers and, and teachers of pre-Christian uh, Greece and so forth, and, and the exalted culture that that was. You know, how could it? How could it be this? How could it be him? But that's our teaching. That's what we believe. We believe was that man of that people in that place in that time, and that that. And then when we look back on it, we, we believe and we see that God was preparing, God was, was building, was working up to it. Uh, that, and we, <clears throat> the, the hymns of the church speak of, and I think we already said that, who were the, uh, I say that early on, who were the two, the two figures of the old covenant, uh, uh, or who are the two great figures that, that the old covenant produced? To, to the, that in a way all of those centuries of God working with Israel was to bring forth two human beings, two people 
that would be the fruit, the fruit, the produce of all of that of working with Israel. Um, if I were, if you already were here for that, don't answer. Anyone want to hazard a guess as who those two people are? It's not Jesus, by the way. Two, two great Old Testament figures that are the final produce of the Old Testament. No. It's Father knows. Anyway, it's it's who we just were talking about. Mary, Virgin Mary, and John the Baptist. Greatest man born of woman. Jesus calls him the one who prepares the way of the Lord. And Mary, his mother, she who would be not simply randomly, arbitrarily chosen to be the, the, the to be the human mother of 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 God's eternal Son, but in fact that she was prepared, she was worthy, she was made ready, she was that fruit. Um, we know about her life, that's which is not in the Scripture. But from the church's memory, the church's family photo album, his memory of, of, of its life, that she was presented to the temple as a young girl to be raised in the temple as other Jewish girls were to likely be this, the, uh, the wives of the priestly caste, the Levites, and the, of, of the Old Testament priesthood. So to be raised in a pious atmosphere of the temple life. The temple was more than just a building. It was a, it was a courtyard and a compound and other other aspects to it but um, that she did that but then she said I don't want to marry anyone which was a problem in Judaism Um, and so she was kind of given to Joseph to sort of hide the scandal of her not wanting to marry you know and then she's found with child which is a bigger scandal yet but she was raised in, in the holy place. She was raised in the very heart of, of Judaism, in the very heart of, of the Old Testament uh, people of God. And, and indeed, she is the greatest, uh, greatest result of all of God's, of God's preparation and working uh, with them, as, as, is, as is her nephew, John the Baptist, Elizabeth's son, her her cousin, right? Questions on any of that? And I I understand that that most of what is said about Christ probably as Christians is uh, coming to looking at orthodoxy, considering orthodoxy. There's not anything that's surprising that of what the church teaches and believes, but it. It pounds at home and emphasizes it. Um, sometimes I've heard preachers kind of, you know, say thank God for Jesus, um, and 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 not always being clear on who exactly Jesus is and what it means that He is God's divine Son, that He's of one essence with the Father, and so forth. That that sometimes there's a sort of shaky Christology, would say, kind of a not not quite uh, a little bit flimsy, a little bit weak, a little bit uncertain as to who is Jesus and what and what do we believe about him? 
but we would say it's all there. It's all in the Word. It's all in the Scripture. The ecumenical councils, really, the uh, all the and we uh, the whole period of the ecumenical councils running from the year three twenty five to seven eighty seven were all about who is Jesus. The church taking on challenges to the identity of Christ. The very again the very first one being Arius who said Jesus is an exalted creature of God, but there's a time where he did not exist. He's not truly the divine Son of God from all eternity. And so the council was formed, in fact called by the emperor to say, this theological problem is a political problem for me. You bishops get together and fix it. One uh, minor point, one minor point of the, of the ecumenical councils is no pope was ever a part of, the, of any of the councils. No pope was ever there. He's, there were delegates. He had representatives, but uh, the other patriarchs were usually there. But 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 no pope. And there would be a discussion in 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 a, at that Vatican Council of 1870 of of is the church led by council or led by a by an infallible pope? Um, and many Catholic bishops were total entirely. I'm reading about it now. They were definitely opposed. To the notion of unfallible papacy, that saying that the church, the council of the church, is the highest authority uh, in the life of the church, and there's examples of times when that exactly was the case, especially when there were three popes. At one time, there were three popes: two in France and one in Rome, I think. And finally, the church in council had to clear that out and and then establish who the who the who the true pope would be. But uh, so that's just uh, but. Again, the point is that those those councils defended uh, for the first for the first three of them were defending the divinity of Christ clearly against those who and and it's it's essentially the challenges to the church's faith they're always pulling to one direction or another so we. We speak of Christ as one divine person, that the eternal person of the, of the, of the second person of the Holy Trinity uh, didn't change in his personhood, that he's not, Jesus is not schizophrenic, he's not, he's not a divine person and a human person coexisting. Nestorius also kind of pushed that, that he's sort of the Son of God and the Son of Mary both. Um, he's, he, his personhood doesn't change. He, the one divine person, the eternal Son of God, comes down, takes human flesh, uh, combining in himself divine and human nature. All the challenges to the church's faith, most of them are, are more likely pull heavily towards the humanity to want to say Jesus is not, the, again, the eternal pre-existing divine Son of God, but that he's, he's human he he he's special, but so forth, and that was Arius, that was Nestorius, and the church said no, no, this is not the God we believe in. This is not the Christ we believe in. This is not the Christ that that the Scripture that speaks of. Later on, uh, in the fourth council, through the sixth council, there was there would be a move to overemphasize the divinity of Christ. To say that in Christ there's only one divine nature, 
there's not a full, complete human nature. The church would then defend the humanity of Christ, say, no, in order for us to be saved, he has to be a full, complete human being. Uh, and as, one, as the fathers came to, to explain it, to say what he has not assumed, he has not saved. What he has not assumed, he has not saved. That uh, in his humanity, uh, the divine Son of God taking on human flesh touches every developmental stage of human existence from, from embryo to uh, uh, preborn infant, newborn infant, child, adolescent, full adulthood. That God and sanctifies every stage of human life in himself in, in all those in all those stages. Um, and again the church when it defended its teaching about Christ wasn't saying this is this is this is our a new teaching. The church is challenged by these heretics and says to them, No, this is what we've always believed. This is what we have always you are making us uh clarify our, our belief, you know, to, to to kind of uh spell it out more specifically, uh to to state it, but we're not stating anything new. We're not we're not making up a new doctrine in this council uh, because of the uh, because of the controversy. Again, the the fathers would always say this this is what this is the Christ of the Gospels. This is the Christ uh, we've always believed, and we're in this council because of the challenge to the church that that various heretics are making. Then, of course, the seventh council would be the icons. That since God has taken flesh, God has shown him his face humanly in the flesh through the incarnation, we can paint his picture. We can paint his, his image. We have beheld his glory, John 1, 14. So, so the really human, uh, the, rea- the human reality uh, of Jesus can be depicted. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And again, the incarnation is real, not a fantasy, that God took flesh, took this stuff. And even the whole spiritual uh, regimen of, of orthodoxy and its prayer and its seeking communion with God would not be possible if, if, if Christ was not true God and true man, if he had not come down to us in order to lift us up to make real communion with God possible. Um, I mean, there's other aspects of it. We talk about monophysites and so forth. We don't need to get into all that, really, so much. Questions, comments? So he, he chose a tribe of Jewish people to come into their, their existence and to teach them. Did he ever, how come he never went back like to the Indians or to, to just, just 
just those in the Jewish faith. Well, that's the, that's what I mean. That's why some some have called it the scandal, quote unquote, of particularities that he does choose that people and not some other people. Well, they rejected him, the Jews. And that was an affront. Well, not all of them did. Hmm? Not all of them did. No. Not all the Jews rejected him. Obviously, the apostles were Jews, and many of his first followers were Jews. Um, it, it was considered a Jewish sect in the earliest times of the of biblical times of the early church. So, it, I mean, it was considered an offspring, an off, an, uh, you know, uh, a sect of Judaism. And the first, the first council of the church, pre pre. Uh, Prior to this great seven ecumenical councils, is ecumenical is the, is in the book of Acts, chapter fifteen, which is to decide what to do with these the Gentiles who want to be Christians. That you know how Jewish do they need to be in order to be followers of of the Messiah, who need to be followers of Christ, and so the church had to work that out, and to decide is its mission just to Jews, or is it to the whole world, to to all people, wherever they are peoples, wherever they come from. Um, Yes, ma'am. What were other religions doing at this time? Were they having the struggles that the past was dealing with, or what other religions are at this time are? Well, I was thinking um, Islam, the fire of the Hajara, and Muhammad. Well, Islam doesn't come around till the six hundreds. Okay. So Islam is later. Um. Islam, you could say, is influences the Seventh Ecumenical Council because it's believed that two emperors uh, in six, uh, decided, well, first one and then later another, said that the church doesn't need images. The church doesn't require images. In fact, the church needs to get rid of its images. Some think that that was those emperors, Christian emperors, seeing the rise of Islam coming out of the East and wanting to sort of make political nice, nice, nicey with Islam, which rejected imagery of all kinds, even, even of any living thing, um, which is why you get in, in the East the Oriental rugs and the great doodling kind of art of the East, uh, which is... Primarily Islamic, and it's because you couldn't depict anything living, but you could make nice designs. Um, so um, there's a there's a thinking that Islam did impact that question of what icons are yes or no, um, not directly, but because there was a spirit, also a spiritualizing movement, which is also uh, typical of human beings. Again, we talk about dualism, you know that that. that the body is matter is evil. The spirit is good. We don't need material crutches. We don't need material imagery. We don't need to look at uh, designs and pictures and things. We need just to be spiritual and and blank and you know blank slate and all that. And so that 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 plays into it too. It wasn't simply uh, because I don't know. I don't think Islam consciously thought it was influencing those discussions one way or the other. I think it was more um, just these emperors kind of trying to sort of politically uh, anticipate something. It, it, it has been shown um, that there were 
first century Jewish synagogues that had icons. Not as we have, but they had paintings of Old Testament scenes and so forth, the, the way you see in the catacombs. Uh, so they're, you know, they're, the church using iconography was it, in just taking that Jewish practice, uh, continuing it uh, into the New Covenant. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't like a radically new thing that somehow you know, Christians had images and no one else did. The next subject is the cross, and I'm I'm not going to start that right now. I think I ran out of gas. Yes. <laughs> me? Yeah. Me? Sure. When Help. I was in when I was in Jerusalem, I went to the place where Christ was. I I think it was. I think I think it may have been the cross, but I'm not sure if if it's the right place I'm remembering. But anyway, they uh, they had. Uh, well, maybe this won't make sense. Think about it. Hmm? Think about it. Well, there was this. I, there was this. Oh, the wall had an icon painted on it. The whole wall, a big wall, like over there and higher, of the wise men coming to to pay homage to Christ. Yeah. And um, when uh, most of the uh, things were destroyed in Jerusalem at that time, and the reason they didn't dis destroy that building was because they saw their people coming, the wise men. The wise men, yeah. What group of people were they from? Well, they were from the east. They were from the east. And how did the, the, the tradition is uh, two were white and one was black, according to some tradition but so the black part was Ethiopian but I don't know which so Caspar Melchior Balthazar so, so Christianity extended to where these three kings came from right yes oh well Christianity was all through Persia and the east today which would be today our modern Iran and Iraq there's still a Christian remnant there but but before Islam I mean it, it I mean there was still a lot of paganism but there was strong Christian presence throughout the East. I want to tell this little story, can I? Depends on what it is. <laughs> yeah, I will have to, if I tell you, they'll hear it too. <laughs> I had my window decorated at Christmas in Philadelphia, a big picture window, and I had the uh, a manger and the three wise men and so forth. And this man came to where I was working, my mother's father's place. Now you have to understand, in the city, townhouses, are right, and then there's the pavement. Your 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 front step is right. It's like in the movies if you've seen New York City. You know, there's the building, there's little steps, and then there's the pavement. So people literally can walk by and look in your window, depending on how your win how high that some some windows are higher than others. But your windows set at about five six feet, so people could kind of look, you know, or or four feet even. So people could kind of literally walk by your front and. Look in your window. Well, anyhow, this, man, he, this yeah. man came to came to where I was working, and I was waiting on him. Waiting on him, and he said, "Did you see that house?" And he described my house <laughs> with, the big, with the big picture window. And I didn't tell him it was mine. He says, "I went home." Now he was black. 
He says, I went home and gathered my four children and told them, come on, you're coming with me. We're going on a bus. He brought his children all the way back to where he worked. In, he worked in South Philly and his children, he lived in North Philly, so his children came with him on the bus to my front, out, front door. <laughs> and what happened is he came because I had put the black wise man first in the line. And he was so impressed with that, he wanted his children to know that Christ is for them too. Aww, yeah. Came all the way, I was so impressed with that. And then I, I think I did tell him it was my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, and remember, I mean, when we're speaking of Jesus as a Semite, I mean, he's he's not really blue-eyed, blonde, white, as we would understand, no offense, that he, we would understand. I mean, he's he's sort of, the Semitic people or Arab people and your people sort of in between. They're, they're a blend. They're com they combine sort of everyone. They're not... You know, they're not black, they're not white, they're they're kind of, to me, that's how I see it, you know, so he that he encompasses us all. Know that yeah. the black people were there at the birth of Christ. Yeah. Uh, also, Simon of Cyrene was likely, you know, African, yeah. Ethiopian, carried the cross, helped Jesus carry the cross. Yes. And a lot of our icons... Uh, the skin is dark on the, the mother of God. And, uh, sure, sure. Any questions or comments on anything else? Oh, I gave mine. <laughs> yes, Ethan. Is, is she also, is, is um, the Philip is also called the Uncut Mountain? I've heard that. Yes. Is, is, that a, is that an Old Testament? Yes, it is. Prophetic reference? It is. I think it's from the Psalms. What's it say? The Uncut Mountain. And it's sort of, I assume, sort of along the same line as. As the temple, um, the gate of the temple. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yes. This is kind of like just trivia, I guess. But I always heard that the uh, wise men were all Persian, and they were like Zoroastrian, kind of like. Yeah, they were. They were stargazers. I think the Zoroastrian religion has something you know involved with a lot of astronomy and so forth, and looking at that and. Of course, the, the teaching of the church is the star was an angel, wasn't wasn't just a you know a heavenly body quote unquote. It was it was a sign that was in it was in the heavens in the sky, but it was an angelic being drawing them to to Bethlehem and you know fascinating them and drawing them to come. Yeah. just a quick clarification on what Nestorius believed. Did he believe that Christ became fully divine by adoption? What, his... what did Nestorius uh, yeah. truly believe? Um, he believed that Mary that he believed Mary merely gave birth to a man not, and so don't call him don't call her Theotokos um, that he sort of adopted later on uh, as son of God later but that's not explained as how, how com fully complete that is but that he is both son of God and son of Mary um, whereas orthodoxy would say the son of God and son of Mary are one in the same person they're one son 
and that's the teaching of St. Cyril of, 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 uh, of Alexandria, who's a great father of the church, defender of the divinity of Christ, uh, against Nestorius. But yeah, I don't, you know, that's, that's kind of, there, there actually are some, of, of a remnant of Nestorian churches uh, in, in uh, either Iraq or Iran to this day, but not, very, not much, but some, or maybe in Syria. But um, it's just, a, again, an overemphasis on one, the humanity versus divinity. We, orthodoxy that holds them both together, we believe, in a balanced, right way, which, and not as a theological construct, but simply this is the Christ of the Gospels. He, we don't say that Christ sometimes acts humanly and sometimes acts divinely, but he always acts uh, both divine and humanly in all that he does. Because the, the Council of Chalcedon speaks of the two natures, divine and human, uh, neither mixed together nor confused, neither separated nor divided. That they're together, but they're not mixed together. They're united, but they're never. They're not. It's uh, and again, human words, theological words, struggling to hold together the mystery of what's going on uh, in the incarnation, what's going on when God becomes man. That we're li- are, we're limited as to what we understand. But it's always been the it, it was the case in these councils and in the church's struggle that we know what we don't believe. We're, we don't we don't know we're not saying we understand fully completely what we are claiming in terms of exhausting it with human concepts. But we know what we don't believe, and what Nestorius, what you're saying, we don't believe. That's not what we believed or what we had believed. You know that somehow he kind of comes upon his, divi- his, his divine identity later on. You know, that we, we don't, we, we, you know, we, the church never believed that. And that's not the scripture. That's not, that's not in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God. You know, and that's where these heretics, like, don't you know your Bible? I mean, what are you doing? <laughs> but um, they did know, and they, they want it, as is also human, they want it a following. They want it to be novel. They want it attention. They want it to be different. They, you know, they wanted a following, and they got it to a point. <laughs>